Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algeman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, we welcome Malcolm Chisholm. Malcolm has over 30 years of experience in the data governance and data management space. He's authored three books, speaks and writes prolifically, and is the, is the president of Data Millennium, which consults organizations across a wide array of data-related topics. Malcolm, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me, Anthony. I'm very happy to be here. So, and we've known each other for many years at this point. We've worked together. Um, you know, to me, you've, you've been one of my mentors and uh, just... A, a luminary in the space for for a long time. I mean, so it, it is especially uh, great to be able to to talk with you about this. So, for those that haven't had the opportunity to to meet you and and see you speak before, can you give us a little bit more background? Just take a moment, give us your story and how you found this calling to do what sure. you do in the space. So, so I'm I'm originally from the UK. I I live in uh, Orlando, Florida, the happiest place on earth apparently um and um i started uh, you know off uh, in um the university uh, doing zoology okay so i was that was kind of my calling at that time and i i was a uh, not a lab uh, zoologist but a field zoologist mm -hmm. and i did my phd in the field studying insect population dynamics which meant that i i had reams and reams of data um, that I had to, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of, of, of data points, basically, that I had to organize. And that required learning how to use a computer, learning statistics, parametric and non-parametric statistics, and manage that data. Well, then I, you know, uh, I started my uh, professional career by then going into IT, where I did a lot of programming and um you know mainframes in those days and gradually um you know came to the us uh, worked more in financial services and was always intrigued by uh data structures mm -hmm. database design moving data around this is um this were you know things were called data processing um in those days not information technology there was it was an emphasis on data uh, moving data around um you know how did you work with data admittedly from a a uh, program or a developer perspective but then gradually as relational databases became more popular or databases in general um i got much more into database design and then from database design uh, with data modeling and all, all of the goodness of that, these sort of ancillary things that go around that, like metadata management, reference data management, and then um, started to get into more purely data-related things in, in IT, like data warehousing, master data management, and then um, and, and data administration, as it was in those days. So the sh the, I shifted away from, from programming to working with data, and that's just accelerated. So now, I, you know, from that, it was a natural evolution into data governance. And, you know, uh, after the global financial crisis, really, it's been the golden age of data. So there's a lot of topic areas within data now that, that I work in. And it's just it's just mushroomed. So that's that's my story. That's that's awesome. I didn't even know about the zoology background, and I've known you for a long time. See, this it's amazing to hear what uh where it all began, and that totally it totally makes sense. How do you do? You still rely on like some of that programming background. I find the folks that do 
um, data work, and especially in the consulting space, if they have that kind of programming hands-on experience, it gives them a little bit of a different perspective. Do you think that's the case? Yes. I mean, you can look IT in the eye and talk about these things and also not be, um, you know, you, you can spot when they're um, blowing smoke at you as well. So um, that helps. And then, you know, you can you get an appreciation for uh, code development, best practices uh, that that are coming back again, actually, because there's a lot of that um, software engineering kind of stuff is starting to get layered into uh, analytics, those considerations. So you, there's certain areas where, where sort of software development and data do merge. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you'll see that with, you know, the idea of data ops today, for instance. So that, to me, that's important. But also the zoology background, because a lot of that was about information. Mm-hmm. How do you classify animals? What, what are their attributes? How do we, you know, how do we organize what we see in, in the living world and things mm-hmm. like that? Those, those, um, those kinds of, of practices are also quite important for what we do today in data. Yeah, well, it, it, it reminds me, because um, the zoology thing, it reminds me of, of I used to think, like I, I do this weird data management and governance stuff. And, and I always thought like, what were the chances that I would end up doing this? And and I realized one day, I'm like, there was nearly a hundred percent chance I was going to end up doing this. Like you find that even though you've gone through this weird journey, there were, there was, it was always kind of pulling you back into that direction. So if you go a little bit too far one way, it pulls you back too far the other way. And you kind of just iterate into the point where you, you find this. Has that been the case for you too? I think so. And I think that, that again, has been also because data is now recognized as the most valuable resource we have. And the information age is different to the industrial age. It's got all these challenges that, uh, frankly, are, are difficult to meet. We haven't really had an Adam Smith who's explained the information age like Adam Smith explained the industrial age. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is there's a lot of work required um, to be successful with data. So the scope is very broad. And I think it does, you, you're right. You are going to, we are going to sort of get naturally pulled in that direction if we have an aptitude for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so the, the reason, and so what, what got me to pick up the phone and like convince you to come out of the podcast was you had written an article around end user computing and it's available in the show notes. It's uh, I saw it on LinkedIn originally. Um, but you talk about end user computing, and I'm like, this, this is exactly what we need to be talking about. So can you provide us a, a bit of background for this for folks that haven't actually already read the article? Uh, what is end user computing and why is it important? So, so end user computing is where business users are writing logic or sort of reorganizing data um, without any IT intervention. And... Uh, this happens everywhere. You have now. It's normally thought of as as being done with, let's say, Excel. Mm-hmm. That's changing today. As more and more people get comfortable with Python, um, and and frankly, it's also expanding as people get um, in the business are able to do SQL a lot more than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very common now. But but we have a couple of things going on, uh, and and I think this this. Uh, goes towards your theme about data leadership. 
we have data democratization, which is being pushed by the tools that are emerging, the data catalogs, the vendors saying, okay, everyone should have access to data they can understand and work with. Okay, fine. Or what happens when you do that? Well, they're going to people are going to work with it without IT intervention. That is end user computing. So you're really enabling end user computing. Now, is that an issue? Well, it could well be. End user computing traditionally has been this stack on top of the IT stack where you but you've got no IT controls. You've got no best practices. And it's very, very widespread, especially, let's say, in financial services or even in any enterprise in, in the financial areas of, of enterprises. And it's it's diffuse. There is nobody who speaks for that community as a whole. Everybody is isolated, doing their own thing in end user computing. Data governance, in my opinion, ought to take the lead and speak for this community, but nobody is. Hmm. And we do, you know, uh, sometimes we do, we do hear, well, why doesn't IT just get involved and get rid of all of this? Well, the, the answer is that individual users have very, very specific data needs. They need to report data in a certain shape, in a certain way, do certain calculations. And those, those are complex. They're to do with the individual job that that end user, that business user has. That little bit of the organization he or she works in, which is complex. IT cannot come in and analyze that. It would take forever. And then you've got thousands upon thousands of these individual endpoints, as it were, in terms of, of data requirements. IT can never scale to that. Right. Okay. And they're changing all the time and new ones are popping up. So you're left with this, you know, where IT kind of leaves off at the, let's say, with a data warehouse. And then the users as it, in the business feeding off of that and doing this end user computing. And it's, it's a – now the regulators – in, especially in finance, understand this, and they're trying to deal with this. But there's no theory or practice, and again, there's no leadership. There's no one voice that speaks to that community in a enterprise. Again, data governance ought to take the lead and ha do you know have some leadership here. But that's roughly the environment as I see it. So what you're saying is that the Excel propagation excel hell as some have, have called it is not all bad no well, it's necessary you couldn't yes. run the business without it <laughs> and that's that's the conflict it says it's bad because it isn't running it right the business says this is absolutely necessary and please don't try to interfere because you'll shut the enterprise down and that's what's so refreshing right is that we're not going to say, hey, hey, don't do this anymore because we can't control it as IT. We have to say this is necessary and it is good. And we should probably rethink our relationship with the fact that people are going to use Excel and they're going to use end user computing no matter what. It probably is something that we're going to want to govern because there is risk right. associated with it as well as opportunity right. with it. That is correct. Now, what would governance mean? It would be it would be, um, let's say, having more standards around documentation, although that might be difficult because the business folks have time to write this in a very often clumsy way. Mm -hmm. Because of their day jobs, they don't have time to document it. They don't have time 
maybe even to check in, check out of a, of a code repository. Right. Um, there's a whole lot of best practices that they're not doing. So absolutely, that that part of it's correct. So how do we how do we infuse that into there? Is that part of some expansion of data literacy where now we're allowing them, you know, or giving them resources, more time or maybe some kind of help to do all that stuff. So we catalog it. We know what it is. It's there for reuse. There's more reusable objects. These are all, I think, open questions. So uh, is there a role or is there a coordination function to take end user computing and fold it back into the more centralized uh, computing area? No, or does it, it once it goes out, it stays out? Well, it, it can't be folded back in because if you have a central pool of resources, the individuals who understand the requirement and have and, 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 and we don't have any IT resources or central resources who can understand that requirement, those individuals have to um, have to do something. OK, now you could you can have a CFA or, um, you know, a certified financial uh, accountant or a, a certified professional accountant or whatever, um, the, you know, and they can learn to write Excel. But you can't take a generic Excel um, developer mm -hmm. and turn them into a CPA. OK, right. it's not that doesn't work because they won't understand, especially not in a particular um, area of, of the business because they're not going to understand the business it might they will never understand the business <laughs> so we're still we're going to be stuck with these business users who have the capabilities of working with data and some you know development um, skills they're always going to be needed but I think it's how do we make that as support how much support can we give them Mm -hmm. Not being bureaucratic, not 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 trying to centralize this. How much support can we give them? And then how much can we reduce things like key person risk, mm -hmm. which is always an issue in these things and um, cataloging and, uh, you know, understanding what they're doing and making reusable objects uh, available to them. That somehow, I think, is, is the approach. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me to focus primary energies on making end user computing as effective as possible, like supporting that so that the individuals working with it, like your, your CPA example, um, you know, that makes sense to me that we want to help them leverage this in a reasonable way. I also right. think though, that there has to be some kind of way. Cause I think about how, what, what are those folks actually doing? And sometimes what they're doing to do their jobs almost out of necessity. A lot of the time is that they're doing, data management functions. They're creating master data. I think I, I think a lot about master data yeah. these days. And so I think about if somebody who's doing end user computing to effectively create master data, is there a way to take that and somehow make that more accessible for others? Because that's stuff we'd love to do centralized. But is it too far? Like, is there a way to loop that back in? Or is that just well, wishful thinking? No, no, I think I think you're onto something there. I think that um, the problem is, let's say I have a very specialized need. I'm a CPA, I have a specialized need. Mm -hmm. But in order to satisfy that need, I have to go and get data from some IT managed data store and do a whole bunch of things with it that might involve master data. And it's really only the last 20 percent 
where my specialized business knowledge gets applied. Mm. So there has to be some kind of, of set of, of intermediate products um, that might be reusable that, you know, somehow, you know, I as the CPA m- m- ought probably not to do. We ought to bring the data somehow closer to them so that it really, we eliminate, it's a last mile rather than a, a huge journey mm. from starting from scratch uh, for them to do this. So I think something like that has to happen. Again, I'm not quite sure what it is, but something, some kind of support l- looking like that would be would be pretty useful. I, do- I mean, people are spending a heck of a lot of time doing these things and it's again it's ignored because there's no constituency and there's no leadership here but again the 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 progress of this inevitable march to data democratization is going to unleash a tsunami of these things in the future I I like to think about it in terms of added friction when we think of of the technology um, structures that we create. Like I like the idea with end user computing of making it relatively easy and friction free to give people access to the data they need to do for their specialized need and get IT out of the way. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think there's probably that kind of what we're talking about is this this um, bi directional flow back into you know useful data assets for um, the organization. It may be a le- an equally light way. Maybe like we have a, an ability to bring it back, but then we can run it through a you know, homogenization or, or harmonization process to make it more useful for others. I'm just like, maybe there's something there. I think, I think there is, but I think if I, I don't know, you know, I, again, you heard from my career that I spend a lot of time in it, so I don't yeah. want to be too disrespectful to it. <laughs> However, um, if you say I now have some sort of data product and we should push that back into a it administered database, I'll say, okay, well, enter a ticket, you know, um, do a justification. Um, we've got to set up a PM for this. It's going to, you know, it's going to be, what, what's the resource? You know, you're going to get all of this. It'll never get done. Okay. Uh, and, and even if, even if it, people fear if it did actually get done, there's the business user will be sucked into some, you know, uh, giant maelstrom of, of sort of, IT bureaucracy just to get this done and it's not benefiting them because they they've already finished. So there's you know you have to think about that. I agree with you in principle. It's just the IT part of it that that worries me. That's a really good point. I think it 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 is all based on a notion of we would have to change the way some of our technology organizations fundamentally work uh, to be able to actually make that possible without adding so many layers of friction to that second direction um, to make it worthwhile. I think it may be something that we will get to, but it's probably not the place to start. So before we move into to any other topics, like what what is your general advice for folks out there that are recognizing this need for end user computing, which I would imagine is probably most organizations see this because well, it's been happening for a while. Well, for me, one of the, like the first principles of data governance is transparency. So I think that the very minimum you can do is to identify what people are doing and get them to log it, to say what they're doing, what they're developing, mm. 
uh, where it is, who can look after this thing if they, you know, are kidnapped by aliens or win the lotto or whatever, um, and are no longer present in the organization. Yeah. I think let, let's at least do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can think about these, you know, the, the other problems after that. Yeah, no. And that's probably a reasonable ask to say, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll not only enable you, we will we will help you leverage these right. capabilities. All we're asking is you let us know what you've done. You log it. You, you just tell us what's there so that if there ever comes a time where we need it for a variety of reasons, we can get to it. And that that's a pretty fair ask in, in, a, in an organization. Yeah. Um, yep. So another another area that and, and we've worked together in some of these spaces, I want to talk a bit about data catalogs and metadata and, and that whole space, because I just have never bought into the broad um, adoption of these data catalogs and metadata. Like, it seems like everywhere I've ever been, getting people to really embrace these is like dental work. It's like you can maybe get people to do it, but it's never something that they're like, yes, let's do some data cataloging. Let's do some metadata management. Um has that been your experience or have you found the secret answer to to making this successful in organizations broadly? Well, I don't know if I have the secret answer, but <laughs> um, but I, let, let, let's just go back a, a bit. Yeah. I think let, let's take a step back and think, where did data catalogs come from? Hmm. Well, you know, we had um, in the early 2000s the new infrastructure that allowed us to have data lakes. Okay, and so people stood up data lakes, and they had all this, you know, cool technology they wanted to play with, and it was basically a place for storing files or data, you know, whatever, CSVs. And what they did was they just filled up these data lakes, and then had no idea what was in there. So they said, "Oh, we got to track that. How do we do that? Well, we need a catalog." So the the data catalogs started out as really these adjuncts to making data lakes work which and, and that was fine and dandy for a few years and then we got the idea like well wh- why are we confining this just to data lakes if we knew um if, if if we could you know and and especially if you're a vendor you're going from a very specialized uh, you know project need to an enterprise need by saying well let's just do it for all the data in the enterprise then people will be able to know where it is and be able to get it and this that and the other um all of which is very vague uh, to be quite honest with you. So the 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 data catalog, if it's pushed out just as a capability and you are told, hey, we have a data catalog, do your day job, and then uh, in your spare time, which you don't have any, <laughs> go put information into the data catalog, um, that's going to be problematical. Secondly, if you want people to... Uh, if you want data catalogs to be successful, the, the whatever is in it, the metadata, the content has to be of high quality. It can't be gibberish, pat, you know, like Swiss cheese, patchy. This is obviously missing. That's obviously wrong. It's got to be super high quality. And then thirdly, the 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 way that we got out of this human aspect of it, say, oh no, our, our data catalogs have all these connectors. They can scan the production data landscape. They can bring all this information together. You'll have all the information about your 
uh, IT and your data environment in one place, and that will enable you to get access to the data, understand it, and all much of it. Well, what you have is, is um, you know, what, what I've called the, the museum of metadata, <laughs> which is that you, you do indeed have a giant-like, you know, sort of hoarders episode of metadata stuffed into your data catalog, and somebody opens the door and has a look inside and say, oh, it's like, how do I find something? And they start typing C-U-S-T, and they've already got 25,000 results. And it's like, I, I give up, okay? So I think, so this is what you get when you think of a data catalog as a generic capability. Yeah. It's just good. You've got to have one because it's good. Let's look at real use cases. So what might be some real use cases? Well, one might be, for instance, that everybody who's creating reports has to use report labels that are in our business glossary. And they've got to mean what the definitions mean in the business glossary. And if you want to do a different one, you're free to do it, but you've got to put it into the business glossary and you've got to put the de your definition in there as well. Mm. So now what we read on a report, if I say weighted average coupon or something like that and scratch my head and ask myself, what does it mean? What's the methodology for it? How is it calculated? I can go back and look it up. And if it's you know something in the context of this report that's unique to that, then I've got it. Mm. So we, this is you've got to have real use cases driving this hard use cases not oh you can search for things and find them that's that's not going to work yeah and that's not very compelling reading i've read through data catalogs and it is not going to hold interest um it's it it i like that a lot the museum of metadata um i i have been a fan and i haven't quite figured out how to encourage it enough but what i what i have liked in, in data catalogs is where there's an ability to capture some of the context and collaboration and, and arguments around data i'm like what we've right. approached from the early days when we we're like we want this pristine and and you know uh, approved approved view of a particular term or something that to me it's like it's like the old math test where you'd only get partial credit if you didn't show your work i'm like i want to see the work there's good context no, in that well I'm, i absolutely agree with you so um i think that you've got to make the data, I go slightly further. You have to make the data catalog not a passive store of documentation, mm -hmm. but it's active in the development processes, whatever they might be, mm -hmm. in, in what people are doing in working with data. So they need it. And so you would have requests through, you'd have notifications through it. You would, so you've got that. And then next, data literacy there's an aspect of data literacy which i think is overlooked but is fundamental which is record keeping now we talk about literacy how did languages and alphabets and things like that well not maybe not languages but alphabets and, and writing systems that first appear they were really used for for record keeping first keeping tallies of things so we want to encourage in data literacy that if you have knowledge or you're doing something Make a note of that in the data catalog. That's really your obligation. And so especially if it's like, you know, uh, don't use this column. It's, you know, it's really bad. You know, um, here be dragons kind of thing, you know. So uh, put that, you, you have an obligation to put that in just as a good corporate citizen. So I think things like that we can encourage 
and then you can get into you know recognition of people that are doing it um you can you can uh, turn it into a bit more of a social experience. People like it. People get recognition. Things, all those kinds of things, can I think be done? Because you're, you're right, Anthony. You will never get the true knowledge of the data just from these formal things like, oh, customer first name is first name of customer. Uh, you know, it's 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 not it's not going to happen. Yeah. The, well. So okay, so I, I think I mean we're we're continuing to you know, chip away at that. I don't think we have the 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 magic answer, which I'm disappointed in, but I kind of realized was probably going to be the case. Um, one thing that I do because you've done and and before we run out of time, I want to spend some time on this, and because I think a lot about because we're talking about data catalogs, metadata, we're talking about end user computing, which is kind of on one far end, but I think about all these interrelated topics in the data life cycle. So we've got everything from like, if I'm going to bring in data, I've got to have my you know ETL. I've got to have um, data profiling. We've got metadata somewhere in there. We create master data. We create um, you know different data artifacts for things. And, and all of this kind of comes together. We, we are moving data. We are cataloging data. We are you know displaying and, and sharing data with others and, and doing all of this. But a lot of where the, the magic actually happens comes back to business rules and comes back to where business logic yeah. is stored and how it's it's managed. And I see all of these different steps in this journey, and I find it, you know, there's all these functional things that we have to worry about, but then the bigger coordination function where, where where the the mess really happens is in all of these layers of business logic it's like i could handle the functions but the business logic becomes the unwieldy mess how do we do it like what is a business rules engine first for for those who haven't heard of that and let's talk about how that relates to some of these other concepts so a, a business rules engine is a is a um software environment that is capable of taking a, um, in, I'll give you my definition, mm -hmm. uh, the metadata specification of an atomic unit of business logic and executing it. Now, an atomic unit of business logic to me is something that calculates a data value in mm -hmm. some way, shape, or form, okay? Um, some people will disagree with that because they'll say it's, that they think of it as like, um, decisioning like a credit score uh, uh and and you know there's there's a lot of literature about this but even a credit score is still a value mm -hmm. or are we going to approve you for this loan yes or no well you're still getting an outcome that should be stored as data okay mm -hmm. so it's it, it but it's atomic it's like um you know um a equals b plus c okay and and so we want to capture that and we want to curate that piece of logic and say, well, who told us about that? Are there, you know, uh, issues about uh, the precision that should be, you know, number of decimal places in this? Is this a special kind of, of rule? Like, is it the calculation of a fee? Mm -hmm. Or a lot of data, a lot of business rules are actually um, connected with data quality. Um, is, is this some kind of data quality test? So all of that, uh, sort of metadata around the business rule also needs to be there because it helps mm -hmm. you to manage it in the ideal world that, you know, I would, I would advocate for people in the business can structure business rules and um, you know, in some kind of GUI by selecting data 
and then just save them and have them scheduled and executed in certain contexts. Mm. I don't see, I don't really like the idea of business rules or some kind of thing where you have an analyst write them out in a Word document and then some programmer handcrafts them somewhere in a piece of logic uh, because you lose the traceability from, from that analysis mm -hmm. very often to the to where it's implemented in code. Whereas what I'm suggesting is much more forward metadata engineering where the business rules engines pick up something that's that's entered through a GUI and execute it. Mm -hmm. So you have the you have the traceability in the metadata around it. So that's kind of my my viewpoint on it. So does it is it functionally is it a repository of those rules that then get executed elsewhere or does it actually execute those business rules as part of the it, engine? It, you you could have be both. So people there is a, like, a division in the business rules community between the guys who are saying, let's capture the rules, okay, in some way. And they can get into like syntax. I don't really want to go there. Mm -hmm. I'm not too worried about that. I'm more worried about is it is it something a user can specify, however that's done. And then the execution. I would personally prefer that the environment where the rules are captured also execute the the rules. How how does this relate to what I think of with with data governance or um you know the, the kind of approval processes that we may need to have like are there are there active decisions happening as part of this or is governance totally separate in terms of the workflow facilitation no. of things or how but does this connect There are um a lot of governance concerns around business rules one is uh, you know, you don't have an environment that's a, a black box, which a lot of, you know, old legacy IT systems have turned into because the programmers who developed this originally have just left. Mm -hmm. We have no idea um, how, you know, how this thing works anymore. So, so you want with business rules to know who specified it and to get them to periodically review the business rule and say it's still valid. Is still something that we we want and and put documentation around it. Not much, but just something to understand the context of it, classify it, and so on. So, I think that 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 is uh, you know that's super important. Other kinds of governance are well, is this making you know is this part of something that's making a decision um, that affects you know people, or is it? Uh, in a critical part of the business in some kind of business process that we need to track. So there's a lot of things like that, that you, 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 you know, are, um, uh, you need, you know, you need to know who the account, who's accountable for what with respect to the business rule and, you know, the monitoring and sort of, you know, maybe even regulatory implications of executing it. I have to think that there is a role for this, um, in, in business rules and business rules engines in the context of this data democratization and even going back to end user computing, it's like, is there is there a parallel for where business rules at an EUC perspective reside or do those business rules belong somewhere else? I'm just trying to think of like, what are these relationships between what we would consider you know, enterprise or organizational business rules that should be in a business rules engine versus the smaller stuff, the, the things that well, are more tactical. Right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't distinguish it. 
necessarily. I, th I think business rules exist at, at least three levels, um, conceptual, logical, and physical, where conceptual is like, in general, this is how you calculate, um, you know, um, gross revenues, okay? Or, you know, um, uh, a, a sale price, you know, it's the, it's the quantity uh, times the unit price plus the tax, okay? So you can, you can write that down in English and, and have that somewhere and everybody can agree with it. Okay, but in a particular system, this information that we're talking about would be in, in different tables. So at a logical level, you might have to sort of spec that out a bit. And then at a physical level, it would be a SQL statement or a code snippet or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the, the conceptual stuff is going to be, yeah, that's done once. And, and then, yeah. but the logical, uh, sorry, the at least the physical mm -hmm. um, would be one per system, including the EUCs. Mm -hmm. But they have to tie back. You have to somehow tie them back to that one conceptual rule so you know everywhere that it's being executed in some kind of physical form. It almost has a parallel to like policy and procedures almost. Like it's Yeah, it does. Um what it made me think though cuz I, I as a database person myself, you know, logical, conceptual, physical, like that that you're talking my language there. I see, though, especially as these tools have become available to so many folks, a lot of blurring of those lines. There's a lot of like these tools that that start to ignore some of those boundaries. Does that cause us additional problems or are these things that people like as part of data literacy? Do people need to understand the difference between conceptual, logical and physical? I Well, I think as part of data literacy, they have to. Mm -hmm. OK, so that that's that's. That's part of it. The tools themselves are still evolving. Um, I think we have a lot of software engineering mindset still that these are, to be honest, the software engineers are not data people. They, they, mm -hmm. they think in terms of software development. They don't think in terms of, of data, um, as you and I would understand it. And that's problematical because they're, you know, they're, in, they're sitting in the vendors, um, you know, developing product. Uh, but I think eventually it's going to be driven towards this because IT, IT, you know, years ago used to do a heck of a lot of, of development. Well, for transaction systems, you just go and buy them or rent them these days. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't, you know, builds their own transaction apps anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, data warehouses are becoming increasingly sort of commoditized too. So IT is looking more and more just looking at infrastructure. So they're not, you know, they're, they're not as involved as they used to be in this. But so the where's all the logic and all these things being thought about is in the business. So eventually it has to, be, I think, come back to the business. And I still like this idea of metadata is not post facto documentation, but we have forward metadata engineering where the metadata is being specified in order to create something that runs, something that executes. So I, I I was thinking so we're we're recording this um in in May of of twenty twenty one and and we've been dealing with this pandemic for the past you know year plus now and um you know is anything with this move to kind of remote work and organizations from your vantage point 
either through you know the the end user computing things that we've talked about or the data cataloging or business rules has it started to bring into focus or highlight the importance in ways that it maybe hadn't previous to this pandemic and remote working scenario like what's top of mind for you now well Right. I think there's a lot of things you hear about, like security and access to data and all, you know, don't do this on your desktop and all that. OK, that's all fine. I, I get that. But to, to me, it's more like, well, you've got data knowledge in people's heads. Mm -hmm. Now they're working remote. Uh, what happens if they, you know, heaven forbid, they get COVID and they're out for two weeks uh, or something like that? How are, are we never built? We never thought of disaster recovery or business continuity in those terms. I mean, not as if this was not known. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at Costco Pharmacy and Costco had a pamphlet of what to do in a pandemic. And, Costco, you know, I read through it and it said, you'll likely be at home for six months or more. Hmm. So, you know, make sure you can work from home, make sure you can do this. So, you know, um, the, 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 this is not totally new. OK, yeah. so I think we have not done a good job of preparing for it. And a lot of a lot of sort of risk management is somebody needs to be planning for this now. So I think I still don't think that we've got um, data key person risk uh, properly taken care of that. You know, the knowledge that people have in their heads about data somehow needs to be pulled out and documented and people shouldn't be penalized for that. They should be rewarded in some way. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think another trend that we're going to see in this decade, irrespective of COVID, but maybe accelerated by it, is uh, large-scale uh, industrial automation. So we're already talking about, you know, you've got a thing the size of a shipping container that's got a kitchen. You can plug into the back of your favorite fast food joint and it'll produce you know fried chicken burgers or whatever okay all done automatically better so this is going to this kind of um revolution is going to come it'll probably uh, if this is if this is correct it will probably um accelerate onshoring of manufacturing again mm. i think that that is a trend that's going to lead to a lot more what we're calling iot data today that we as data professionals have to deal with so i think that's that's another trend how coupled that is with the covid pandemic i'm not sure but i think it is coupled there's some kind of relationship i can't put my finger on but i think it's a trend that's going to happen so we need to get you know more into working with our engineer true engineering friends the you know manufacturing engineers because we might be doing things like predictive maintenance for machines and uh, things like that. That might be more, uh, you know, different kinds of use cases than you and I have traditionally worked on in information systems in the past. It'll be, it'll be this coupling of control systems, which exist in machines, with information systems, which is what we as data professionals traditionally have worked with. So... That's some of my thoughts. And it, this is why I enjoy talking with you so much is that you're able to think about some of the, the latest and, and most, you know, current technologies or, or dynamics in our organizations or our world and apply what are traditional, like these, the fundamentals 
aren't changing. They haven't changed in a long time, but they've evolved. Like there's, 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 there's what we need to do about them has evolved, but the fundamentals are still in place and, and circling back to those is always a good, um, you know, a good rule of thumb is to say, how does what this new thing is trace back to something we can hold as fact? And it kind of reminds me of even like the business rules engines themselves of saying, right. like, it circles us back to this foundational footing that we can then build more on top of. And that those those patterns are fascinating. It's certainly something that keeps my mind thinking in this data space of, of what are these patterns that we see repeating themselves in, in all of these different contexts. So, Malcolm, we are way out of time. I just looked down at the time and I realized this went by super fast. So I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you again for inviting me, Anthony, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. would absolutely love to have you back. It's the next, it's what's going to happen is I'm going to see another article you've written in and say, Malcolm, Malcolm, come on, let's let's have another episode. So please uh, be ready for that. And, and thank you all out there for watching or listening today. In the show notes, you'll find useful links and more information about today's topic. Follow Data Leadership Lessons on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Check out my book at dataleadershipbook.com and use promo code AlgmanDL at the Dataversity Training Center for 20% off your first purchase. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. <laughs>